0: Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm David Lim. It's Wednesday, the 26th of August. In today's podcast, I attempted to get a better understanding of the crisis in the aged care sector and the fact that thousands of elderly and vulnerable Australians were left at high risk, paying the price with the highest incidence of death from COVID-19 in Australia. How did this happen? What really is the problem? I will be speaking with Professor Joe Abraham about these issues. Once again, the latest global and local COVID 19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well.
1: Today I will be speaking with Professor Joe Ibrahim about these vaccine issues, seeking to understand them and to help prevent it from ever happening again. Professor Ibrahim, can you please tell us about yourself? Thanks David. I'm the head of the Health
2: Law and Ageing Research Unit at the Department of Forensic Medicine Monash University. I've also been um, in clinical practice for 35 years and over um, I guess uh, 30 of those years have been in aged care and I continue to work in
1: clinical practice in aged care both in hospital and in the community. Professor Abraham I understand that you have a very deep interest of course in the current crisis in the aged care facilities in Victoria. Tell us about the lessons learned and how, how are we to understand what the politicians are trying to tell us and what we sh- should we do in the future to prevent it ever happening again?
2: There's a, there's a lot in those, those, those comments. I think the first thing is, um, I, I guess I should also add that I've been um, involved with the Department of Forensic Medicine and involved in cases related to premature death and our researchers been looking at premature death, injury prevention, systems, and quality measurement in mm-hmm. aged care homes for the last 15 years. So, we've got a really good understanding of what's happening in aged care. I think if we go back, it's easier to tell the story historically. And if we go back to Christmas, everyone was relaxed and there was nothing really for us to worry about. Mm-hmm. The pandemic really arrived on our shores, you know, in a way back in March although we had uh, an inkling that something serious was happening. Mm
1: -hmm. We
2: knew in March from um, the initial research coming out of China that COVID-19 had a high case fatality rate in older people Mm -hmm. and particularly older people with multiple comorbidities and that population Um, in Australia are the very people, the 210,000 people in the aged care homes. So we knew that they were at high risk. We then had really the very disturbing um, pictures and and accounts coming out of particularly Spain in the first instance and Italy, where the army had gone into the aged care homes and had found them deserted by staff Mm-hmm. And that there were people either dead in their bed or people that were dehydrated and neglected and so weren't able to care for themselves. So we knew in March that this was happening. And this story or th- these events occurred in successive countries in almost identical manner. So it went through France, the UK, mm-hmm. Canada, the USA and Um, and and essentially through the whole world. And and what we know from the accumulated statistics is that the persons who live in aged care homes across the world generally account for at least 50% of all deaths.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: the important thing here is they account for less than 1% of the total population in in any country. And so this is a huge disproportionate effect. It's important, and you've been very clear about talking about residential aged care, because the highest risk is in that setting. It's not the community older people. They are at, at um, a slightly higher risk, but the risk is nothing like for the ones in an aged care home. And so I think, and our team thinks, there must be something about the the nature of how COVID enters, how it's managed, mm-hmm. and how it spreads. that increases that fatality rate to such an extent. The first, um, I guess, comprehensive report came out of the United States and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, which looked at uh, an outbreak in, I think it was Kings County. And there, the, they, you know, that outbreak, I think, was in late February, it went through the entire long-term care facility um, right. in a very short space of time. And despite mobilising the CDC very quickly, they had 30 to 35% of the residents that were infected died. And so a very high case fatality rate of 35%. The overall case fatality rate is around, or usually quoted as around 1% to 2% overall. So there are significant disparities. Mm. The CDC reported at that time that the issues were staff moving between places, hard mm-hmm. to pick up whether someone did or didn't have an infection, no PPE. If PPE was available, it wasn't being used properly and people weren't able to really handle the situation. And so these and um, these factors were all known um, when the first major outbreak in aged care occurred in uh, New South Wales with the Dorothy Henderson Lodge outbreak. That um was contained relatively quickly, and then the new March house outbreak occurred mm-hmm. and People are drawing um, comparisons between the two and I understand that new house sorry the the new March House um, report is um, out today or this week to explain what went on there. There were some obvious differences in both the size of the facilities. So Newmarch had more residents than Dorothy Henderson. Mm -hmm. My understanding was Dorothy Henderson had more single rooms and, and in fact, I think all were single rooms with balconies, Mm -hmm. which meant that it was easier to isolate and there's less chance of the virus spreading. Um, And so there are some inherent factors within the building that make aged care higher risk. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also some community health and medical-related issues where the older people in aged care do not get the same treatment or the same attention that anyone else does. There is an inherent bias in how people in residential aged care are treated. The overall belief, which is wrong, is the people are there are just waiting to die, Mm -hmm. and if they die soon, then that's a, a positive end. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw with the initial response in Australia and and around the world partly was an overemphasis on advanced care plans um, Mm -hmm. as really the first strategy. The first strategy was get all the old people to sign up to an advanced care plan rather than our first course of action is make sure no one gets the virus and everyone gets to live their natural life. And then you have the controversy, um, which I still don't understand truly, is older people shouldn't really be accessing acute hospitals.
1: Mm-hmm. A-
2: and what, what drives that type of mentality or that thinking is really uh, very discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And we saw recently in Victoria where, where there were public statements saying that older people are clogging up the hospitals mm-hmm. as if that they don't deserve to be treated. And they're factually inaccurate because at the time of those reports, There were 600 people hospitalised with COVID. Less than half of them had um, were people from residential care. So at most, they would have been occupying 300 beds in a state system that has well over 15,000. So over 15,000 hospital beds Mm -hmm. and people are screaming blue murder over Mm -hmm. a person occupying um, 300 of those beds. And there was no outcry from government or other medical groups or Mm -hmm. the community at large generally on how outrageous and unfair it is to be doing that. So there's some of the fundamental uh, issues that I think have led to a a higher case fatality rate is people have been slow to act if they have Mm -hmm. acted and they have had limits In place about what you should do rather than saying what is the optimal care there's been a lack of transparency around it and the the bigger debate that hasn't occurred is because of the circumstance that you're living in you're now exposed to COVID even if you didn't have it so in an aged care home where the average number of people living is around 80 in Australia if you have one person with COVID and it spreads through then used simply by sharing the same street address, are exposed to COVID. And the argument that um, the public health, you know, some of the public health proponents had put forward was you shouldn't transfer anyone out and you should simply contain it, it means that people uh, are going to get the infection whereas they wouldn't have if there'd been isolation. And then to add to that is there is extensive use of in-reach services. So people have turned a aged care home
1: Mm-hmm.
2: into a quasi-acute hospital without the staff, the know-how, the set-up for it. So it'd be no surprise then that more people get the infection, more people get it more severely because of the potential viral load, and the care is suboptimal, so more people will die. And, and what you end up with is people wringing their hands and sending their condolences saying, well, what what did you expect? They're old, they're going to die. Rather than looking at what are the preventable measures that could have been taken and were they taken and how well were they taken. Our team started working on COVID back in March. Mm -hmm. Um, We produced the 29 episodes um, for the podcast series. Um, We've got six discussion documents that we'd sent to state and federal government and health departments really, in terms of our civic duty to try and prompt action and to help develop a plan which still doesn't exist in Australia for aged care homes.
1: It still Uh, doesn't exist.
2: Well, well, there is no. If if you can point me to a comprehensive plan for the country, I I will. uh, You you tell me. Where where is it? What we saw recently at the Senate inquiry Mm. was... The renaming, rebadging, relabeling of a set of guidelines that was produced, that was sent mm-hmm. to the providers in March. And if you look at the CDNA document, which is what the you know the, the former chief medical officer and the health department and the ministers have, have all referred to as a plan, is mm-hmm. in fact a set of guidelines that are directed at the aged care provider of the facility, mm-hmm. which gets delegated to someone in middle management to apply. So the government set out a set of guidelines and uh, we're expecting 2,700 homes to develop their own plan, a bit like a bushfire escape plan. And on page two of those guidelines, uh, there's a statement there for all to read that the Commonwealth and CDNA and everyone else doesn't take any responsibility for the contents or the consequences of you applying them. And if you want to read further, the onus is on the aged care provider to make sure that they have a workforce, to make sure that the GPs can turn up, to make sure that they've sorted out their relationship with the acute hospital. And as your listeners, I'm sure, would know, it's highly unlikely that an acute hospital is going to take a call from the nurse unit manager of an aged care facility Mm. to sort out a pandemic plan between the hospital and the home It also makes no sense at all in large metropolitan cities to have 20 homes ringing the one hospital each to negotiate a separate Mm -hmm. arrangement. And so there is there is no plan. No one can point to a plan. And so they've had the opportunity at the Royal Commission and they've had the opportunity at the Senate Inquiry and they have not presented a plan and you and I would know what a plan looks like. You pick up any public health textbook, and it'll tell you that the plan needs to engage a range of stakeholders, a plan needs to address a number of different levels within the system, and the plan needs to be coordinated, not that you send out guidelines to a home and saying, here you go, do what you can, and um, we're not going to be around. You know, the equivalent of that is like telling everyone in Australia is to have a bushfire readiness plan. But if there's a bushfire, just be clear that if you haven't discussed it with your fire brigade, they're not gonna be coming. And in fact, we're not gonna tell you what services we've got and we're not gonna coordinate the the fighting the bushfire for the community. It's only that if you're in trouble, call us. That, that's, that's what they've done with COVID. They have not got a plan that allows you to organise at a local community level, at yep. a regional level, at a state level, or at a national level.
1: Just two words come to my mind, Joe. One fragmented and the other is isolated.
2: Well, well I, I, I think that that sums it up um, absolutely and, and very objectively. I, I, I would have been a little bit harsher in... Well, sorry, mm-hmm. I, I would have thought that in the 21st century, what what we want is transparency. So we yep. want to know why people are doing what they're doing, and the public yep. should ha- has a right to know. And that if you occupy a position of authority, then your responsibility is to that position, not to yourself, not yep. to anyone else. And you, you, the the people that are organising this are meant to be objective, dispassionate and seeking for the optimal outcomes for the country and the individuals. That that does not play out when you have this isolation and fragmentation because what you then get is duplication of effort which is wasteful. Mm. Mm. And you have people that aren't resourced not getting anything at all. Mm. So in some places you double up, and in other places you get nothing. And you're then left to the personality And the skill set of that individual and that's not what you signed up for when you go into an aged care home that's not what anyone signs up for it's like going to a high school or going to school and saying how this school performs is entirely based on the personality of the principal and so but but that's that's not right it's it's not the case but Mm. the government handed over Mm. residents as basically bits of furniture, they handed them over for aged care providers, including the private ones and including the ones that are driving their fancy cars in their large mansions, handed them over to that group of business owners to look after their health and lives. And what staggers me is why people aren't even more outraged um, on that because you would never hand over. It's like yeah, being on holiday and your health and welfare is up to the tour guide or up to the hotel. Or, you know, you know, the, the shopping centre is now responsible for whether you go to hospital or not. The well, shopping centre management will decide whether they get a doctor for you or not. Yeah,
1: that it's just wrong. Oh well, Joe, I, I just run out of words to try to describe the feeling I have inside me. It is the shopping.
2: It is shocking, and I think the what what I have learned is that people are shocked, but you can't turn people don't turn shock into action. What Mm -hmm. people do is shock is just um, exhausting, confronting, and then people move to do something that takes their mind and worry off it and move Well, we'll talk
1: about that in a minute because I think looking at what kind of things you're trying to do and how we can get behind you. and and consolidate some kind of a movement would be helpful. Just listening to what you just told me, I was reading an article just before I rang you about the new March House facility that 18 days before they had the first case, they had given themselves full marks for COVID-19 preparedness. So they were doing whatever they thought they could with the guidelines and nobody else assists them, they assist themselves. Is that what generally happens? Yes, so in the evidence I gave to the Royal
2: Commission, the, the Aged Care Quality Commission, so the regulator, had sent out a self-assessment survey and I think approximately one-third of respondents rated themselves as best practice. The majority rated themselves as good or better. And so that, that there are a number of issues about, one, self-rating is inaccurate, and everyone knows that if you judge your performance um, most people overrate their performance. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone thinks they're a good driver and clearly it's not possible for the whole world to be a good driver. Mm-hmm. The other issue is I don't understand how the commission could ask a place whether you're performing at best practice when there is no such guideline around best practice. And if the, the commission was allowing people to judge themselves as best practice, it, it presupposes that the the commission understood what best practice is and had provided them with that information. And so there there is no best practice guide for pandemic management. And if you didn't rate yourself well, because, you know, you've got to remember that, and this goes to the lack of understanding um, of the people in power as to what happens on the ground. The survey's completed by a nurse who's yeah, mid-level and being told, here, fill this in. It's mm-hmm. then got to be, you know, cited by a manager. The manager's mm-hmm. not going to let you submit something that says that you're not performing well to the regulator. wh well, why would you do that? Because you know, mm-hmm. if you say mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. the regulator's going to come down, inspect, or do something, mm-hmm. create more work, and sanction you. And it's mm-hmm. not clear what you're supposed to do. So you're not going to say anything. And the commission then takes the, you know, the most damning thing is the commission took comfort from a survey where over you know a third of the homes said that they were at best practice. Imagine mm-hmm. if you were to survey all general practices in Australia or all public hospitals and they come back and say a third of them reckon their best practice, their world's best. Mm-hmm. W- would you believe that? Wow. It, it, it just beggars belief that, that that's what you would rely on. But it gives uh, people a sense of with
1: security and comfort doesn't
2: it I, I think that that's the other part that I hadn't considered but it certainly does because if you've sent back your self assessment saying your best practice and it's unquestioned there's your reinforcement that you must be at best practice yeah, because yeah, yeah. the regulator hasn't said anything to you or the regulator doesn't care that much that they've done a self assessment and there's not the follow-up that's needed
1: the regulators themselves might feel, um, if you like, comforted by the fact that one-third of best, practice or better.
2: Well, I, I think certainly the regulator wanted that comfort, but to me that was... I've said that's an abrogation of responsibility. Well, yes.
1: It, it, it's,
2: it, you know, it, it is very much like um, your line manager when you're at a hospital coming to you and saying, do you have everything that you need? And, you know, there's no point saying, no, you don't, because they're not going to do anything. You know, you say, "Well, well... Yes, sure, I've got everything I need, but what I really need is another doctor, two more nurses and some people to cover the weekend shift. But the last 10 times I mentioned that you did nothing. You know, it, it's it's really a way of saying, I asked you, you said you need help, therefore the responsibility
1: sits on your shoulders. Look, I think, Joe, a lot of us would remember the minister being questioned on television and the performance itself. It was difficult to watch
2: yeah i i I think that uh, you know that the whole country knows just how difficult it it was to watch and how um i think disappointing it was but i think the the collective performance with the Senate inquiry on the day just mm-hmm. did not fill me with any confidence at all that the people who are leading the response are reflective on what's occurred and mm-hmm. are willing to uh address the gaps what what you hear are continued sort of denials or affirmations that um, everything is on track and and that that type of thinking generally speaking we know doesn't bode
1: well words of wisdom there professor abraham i just want to wish you goodbye and thank you thank you so much no worries
0: okay bye-bye and now for the global and local COVID 19 statistics from the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, we find that the global COVID 19 cases has exceeded 23.8 million. The USA has more than 5.7 million cases. Brazil recorded more than 3.6 million. India has exceeded million, Russia more than 963,000, South Africa more than 613,000, and Peru with more than 600,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is 817,310 with the USA recording more than 178,000 deaths, Brazil nearly 116,000, Mexico nearly 61,500, India with more than 58,500 and the UK with more than 41,500 deaths. Australia has reported 25,014 cases of COVID-19 to date and 549 deaths. Victoria recorded 149 new cases in the past day and 24 deaths. The growth rate in Victoria is still trending down and is currently 0.8%. There are, however, 582 people in hospital. 16 are in the ICU and 19 are being ventilated. New South Wales has reported six new cases, one in hotel quarantine and five cases are under investigation. Queensland has reported one new case of COVID-19.